pray. Lord, thank you. Uh, we are grateful. We are grateful to you for all things. You are good. That never changes. Um, and you do good things, including offering us redemption, reconciliation, forgiveness, eternal life through your Son. So we thank you for uh, the remembrance of those things this morning. Thank you for this uh, group that's here. And we pray, God, that you would do above and beyond all we ask or think. I pray specifically that you would change the way we think. Um, And I ask this in Christ's name, that he would be glorified. Amen. Okay. I got another one of my whiz-bang outlines here. The left page pretty much is review from last week. And uh, if you were paying attention or like to see how smart you are or aren't or whatever, I would encourage you to take a few minutes right now to start filling in those blanks. And uh, then I'll collect them later and you'll get your grade. (laughs) No, seriously. We titled the message last week, Ultimate Happiness Comes at a Cost, and it was a review on the Beatitudes. And the word blessed in those Beatitudes is happy, but it's not, as you know, it's not a situational-based happiness. It's a deep, abiding happiness. It's it's the ultimate in happiness. It's It's a really good state of being, regardless of your circumstances. Um, And so the secret to happiness or fulfillment in an unhappy world, I think we kind of recognize the world seeks happiness and generally doesn't find it or finds it in very temporary measures. Um, Is we will find it in Christ, in Scripture. Um, And I gave gave a reference to John 10.10, which most of you probably know. Jesus said, the thief, Satan comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And Jesus said to his disciples, I have come that you would have life and have it to the full, that you would have abundant life. That's eternal, and that's right now. And uh, Christians too often tend to think, oh yeah, it's going to be eternal life, and it'll be great in heaven. You're designed and intended as a born-again believer to have the abundant life right now. And I'm not talking like some TV evangelist kind of people like to talk about the abundant life. But I'm talking an abundant life, a full life, and you should know that you have that. And that goes right back to those Beatitudes again. Blessed are those who. Um, Okay, the kingdom in one word. What was that word last week? Somebody. Thank you! Kayla. Right? I don't even remember your name, but she's awesome. <laughs> Unexpected. Yeah. Not in, its, not in the timing, right? They were expecting the kingdom to come, right? Magi came. Uh, Herod, 30 years prior to the time of the Sermon on the Mount, Herod had slaughtered a bunch of babies trying to kill this Messiah. I mean, they, they were expecting the kingdom to come. So it wasn't unexpected in the timing. It was unexpected in the way it came. And if you read the Sermon on the Mount, that should become very clear. Uh, We looked at parables where Jesus 
was taking a familiar thing and then using it to illustrate something unfamiliar. And uh, Matthew 13 is all about parables about the kingdom. Okay? The purpose of parables was both to hide and to reveal truth. Right? And we know that from Scripture. That seeing they may not see and hearing they may not hear. So the Lord intentionally was hiding truth from those who were rejecting truth and revealing truth to those who were receiving it. That's the whole purpose of parables. And to correct misconceptions, and I talked about that last week, you know, each, each of the parables that I looked at, there was a common misconception, and that I've just kind of, that was my own conclusions that I drew, but we can draw very good conclusions when we go through the scriptures. I don't mean your own bizarre doctrinal interpretation. But I do mean things like, well, why was, what was the context? What was going on? And then you can, some of the scriptural things make sense. Jesus wants to change the way you, I, think. If you don't get that from me preaching last fall and the last couple of times, it's all, this may have all been for nothing. Jesus wants, desires to change the way you and I Think. Not one time, continually, right? And we have scriptural evidence for that. Um, I use Matthew 5.17, which I think is where Jesus said, Do not think that I came such and such. So he's boldly actually addressing the fact of how we think. But Romans, the first part of Romans 12 is excellent. Where um, we're taught there that we, we should not let this world impress upon us, conform us, frog in the kettle, right, last week, whether or not that's a true scientific thing or not, the, the, the image or the analogy is a good one, that if we can become uh, unaware of the very context that we are in, and I say we absolutely are unaware of a lot of the impact and a lot of the effects of the context that we live in. And if we think, well, no, I'm a Christian, I got the Bible, you know, the, the context I live in is, I'm impervious to that. Um, sorry, but you, you would be the super Christian. You know, we're all affected by the context that we live in. And that's why I said we are swimming in a cultural soup. And I identified two things last week. Individualism, which is basically just that individual thing that we as Americans have. I'm not part of a bigger group. I'm me. You know, it's, it's, that's the driving thing. And that affects you. Believe me. It, it, I'm not saying that you're governed by that, but if we're in that kettle, that's just one of the many things that will affect us. And truth decay, I also looked at last week, where the, the whole concept of truth is being and has been eroded. So that many people just absolutely say truth, all truth is relative. You know, truth only, it's only true in its specific context, which we as biblical Christians would say that's absolute baloney. But that's people being affected by their culture. So there is truth, absolute truth, but the concept of truth is being eroded so that we'd scoff at all kinds of things, and sometimes rightly so. 
Um, and then I talked about opinion, conviction, belief, and truth. I just want, want you to really grasp that. Don't take opinion and move it right over to conviction or belief. Um, and to be clear, I've often said the things of faith, you know, the things of God are true. They're absolutely true. No question. But we live by faith right now. So we take those things as belief, right? I mean, I know I absolutely am convinced the Bible is the word of God. That's true. And when the Bible says something, it's truth. But we live in a time where we live by faith. We walk by faith. So I'm saying this so that if you talk to somebody else about the Bible being the word of God, understand that that will be viewed as your belief and that beliefs can vary. Um, and an example of opinion over belief, because this happens all the time, because we're Americans swimming in this kettle. <laughs> so try to think of an example. What would be a good example, common, a cliche or a common example of a person taking an opinion and making it on the level of belief or conviction or even truth? Somebody... Try to think of an example. Evolution. evolution. Yeah. Absolutely no proof for evolution, but it's taught as truth. And I would say the best that they can do is say it's an opinion or a conviction. If you believe in evolution, you can draw, that can be a conviction of yours based on things like the, your interpretation of the geologic record or, you know, how does a caterpillar turn, or a butterfly, you know, a caterpillar turn into a butterfly or things like that. But there's absolutely no proof. There has never been a case of clear proof. What I was thinking of is, well, I don't think a loving God would, then you could just put anything after that. Because you have just, and people say that all the time, right? Like, I could never believe in a God who would send people to hell. Okay, well, you just took your opinion and just put it at the level of truth. And sometimes, if I'm not in a compassionate mood, I say things like, well, you know, God's not really uh, dictated by your opinions. God is God. He doesn't need your opinion. And if you are going to use your opinion to construct God, that's what we call idolatry, right? A God of your own making. So, yeah, that's an example of putting opinion over belief. Um, ultimate happiness is found through mind transformation. And this is, should be one of the most important or mo one of the most impressive parts of your bulletin insert because I think that is just the letter style I got for that and the ooh it's just, I think, awesome. And if you're not looking at what I'm talking about, you're missing out. Mind transformation, right? Sounds like scientific stuff. Well, I guess it probably is. But Romans 12 is all about mind transformation. Don't be conformed. Don't let the soup that the frog is swimming in shape you. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Go to the scriptures understand what is true, what is right from the word of God. Don't let the world, the soup, press in upon you and dictate to you, which it's doing relentlessly. But your mind has to be transformed. 
right? Yes. yes. That's why we have the word. And that's why God gives teachers and that, all kinds of stuff. Our mind has to be renewed. It has to be transformed. The Sermon on the Mount is one of the most transformative passages of Scripture you will ever find. Because right from the very beginning, Jesus is saying weird stuff. Not weird bad, weird to his audience. Right? Yeah. So your mind has to be transformed. Mine, my mind, has to be transformed continually. Continually. Examples, John uh, 3, Jesus talking to one of the sharpest dudes in Jerusalem at the time, Nicodemus, and he blew him out of the water. He said, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Put yourself in Nicodemus' place. He's like, what? That's mind transforming. He was trying to get his head around it, as they say. It's like, well, how do you get born again? He can't, you know, he can't do the physical birth all over again. That's John chapter 3. Uh, Romans 12, again, I keep using Romans 12 because it succinctly covers this, I believe. And uh, when I was reviewing my notes this morning, I think, I looked at Hebrews 12, 1, and I'm like, okay, why did I pick that again? And the only thing I can think of is that is the application of your mind being renewed, where uh, the author of Hebrews says, therefore, the faith chapter, Hebrews 11, Therefore, let us run the race with endurance and let us lay aside everything that is not productive or helpful in that race. Not word for word, but that's his point. It's like you wouldn't run a race with a backpack. So let's run the race and set aside everything that is not helpful for that. Okay, so everything in your life right now, your Constructing intentionally because it's helpful for your Christian life. See what I mean? He wants to change the way you think. He wants to rearrange your priorities. Because if we're going to be honest, all of us have stuff in our life that are not absolutely honed in on making us the most effective Christian we can possibly be. Right? Yeah. So, he wants to change the way you think. Okay, Matthew uh, 5, 38 through 42. See, that wasn't bad. Too bad. Um, okay, so now we're going to look at this passage, 38 through 42. This is the fifth of six correlations where Jesus says, You have heard, but I say to you. He's changing the way they think, right? He says, You've heard, but I'm saying to you. And he's talking in a religious context, very familiar with the Old Testament law. And some of it is a quote from the Old Testament law, and some of it is not. It's the religious institution, especially the rabbinical teaching, has corrupted the Old Testament law so that they miss the mark. For instance, when he says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I don't really think that's specifically in the Old Testament law, hating your enemy but that had become kind of a, a concept that they were teaching. So, in this passage, Jesus is correcting the, the incorrect religious teaching on the traditions related to the law. He gives insight into his fulfillment of the law. Remember earlier he said, don't think I've come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. 
So what he's saying in these passages gives us an idea of what that, that means, what it looks like when he fulfills the law. He explains what verse 20 looks like. Verse 20 was, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the people that seem the most righteous in their time, in their context, unless your righteousness exceeds that, you'll never enter the kingdom. And that word exceeds, I may have mentioned before, it's the idea of a river overflowing its banks. So if you, you know, if you're familiar with you know, the Yukon River or other rivers that break up and they get ice jams and it overflows its banks. So he's not saying your, righteous, your righteousness needs to be a tweak above the Pharisees. He's saying unless it exceeds it overflowingly, abundantly, you will never enter the kingdom. So what he's teaching here is kind of giving us some context to that. And then he sets the standard, as I put in my notes, for verse 48, the last one in chapter 5. You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So he finishes this chapter, and he finishes it by saying, you must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That would be a mind-transforming thing. If I came up here and preached and said, you must be perfect, and I didn't kind of like qualify it with God's grace or being perfect in Christ or anything like that, you'd either be really discouraged or you'd be throwing rocks at me for being a false teacher. But it would not be acceptable for me to get up here and say, you got to be perfect. you got to be perfect. You have to be perfect. But that's what Jesus said to them because he's trying to change the way they think. Their whole frame of reference has to be redone. And the reason it has to be redone is it's the kingdom. The kingdom has come. And those people were like us people. We're like, yeah, kingdom, I guess. I mean, I, you know, I don't hear the trumpets. I don't see the king riding around on his horse. I mean, I know I'll just kind of take it by faith, but it don't really look like it. Is that right? Yeah. It, it doesn't really look like it. That's the whole point. The kingdom is by faith. It has come. And we must adopt it and embrace it by faith. Because the fulfillment of the kingdom, when there ain't no questions and there ain't no dispute, is coming. We are in that time between the initiation of the kingdom and the fulfillment. And people, we're probably all looking forward to that day when it's fulfilled, right? Right? I mean, are we just like, was that a trumpet? Did I hear a trumpet? <laughs> come quickly, Lord Jesus, right? Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. That should be how kingdom subjects feel. That should be. And if it's not, we need to take a hard look at, are we in the kingdom? Do I have kingdom values? Have I let Jesus change my value system and the way I think? You follow me? Because if we're in the kingdom, we know we're in the kingdom, we're hungering for the king's return, this should not really be all that for our day-to-day -day life. In fact, we should know that this is not our home. We should know that, you know, I'm just passing through. This is not my home. 
and I'm hungering for that home. And sometimes it takes things like old age or health problems or difficulties for, to put us in that frame of mind, right? Which is not bad. It's better than not having that frame of mind. But the real trick is someone who's young, reasonably wealthy, very healthy, with the whole world before them to realize this is nothing. I'm in the kingdom. That's when societies get transformed. When, when people who have everything available and they embrace it and they're like, this ain't all that. This is passing away. You know, we can do this and do that, but it'll be gone quicker than you can count. It's the kingdom that matters. So, okay, we're going to look at uh, these verses, um, starting verse 38. So Matthew 5, 38. Um, and he's already gone through things like anger and lust and divorce and taking oaths. And now he says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Two interesting things there. By resist, your, your version may say oppose. So you kind of get the meaning right there. Do not oppose. Do not resist the one who is evil. And the one who is evil there is much more about one who is inherently evil than it is an otherwise good person who does the wrong thing, you know, who does evil. This is much more about, this is a hardcore evil person. You follow me? And he says, do not resist the one who is evil. I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. As we get into these, um, I'm quoting John MacArthur here in your notes. In this passage, Jesus is teaching individual non-retaliation by identifying four basic human rights. So what this is not, this is not a governmental policy. This is not instructions regarding uh, law enforcement or war. Uh, I mentioned last week, you know, I kind of jokingly said, you know, I tend to be a pacifist. What this is not about, as we get into this, it's not about big-time things. It really doesn't even speak to war. So uh, I want to be perfectly clear. You know, we as believers, we got to sort out what do you do with things like war and if, you know, you have to fight a war and, and, you know, you have to take your opinions and then your conviction and your belief and interpret the scriptures. But absolutely in no way am I demeaning anybody who's put their life on the line, either through protecting our nation or being obedient to the government or dealing with crime. You follow me? I have that very high respect for people who have paid a price in those ways. And I haven't even put my foot in the water, but I know that by doing difficult things, we personally can pay a very high price. Right? Our brother, Chuck, who we admire and love, is physically in his body still paying a price for being obedient and serving his country. So when we read this about being slapped and stuff, this by itself is in no way talking about things like that. And I want to be perfectly clear. Total respect for you, brother. So 
so what is it about? Well, it's a slap. Okay, it also doesn't say, Jesus is not saying here, he's not saying when someone seriously assaults you. No, he's not talking about that. He's not talking about coming to the aid of another. He's not saying if you see somebody, you know, beating somebody else up and robbing them, that, you know, be passive. He's not saying that. This is all individual to an individual. And this one's about dignity. It's a slap. A slap would be like it is today, insulting, right? I tend to think of like, I don't know, the old Three Musketeer movies or something where the guy talks with a French accent and, you know, he's all offended and he's like, you know, takes off his glove and slaps somebody and, you know, I challenge you to a duel kind of a thing. It's that, it really is that kind of uh, offending someone's dignity. That's what this is about. I'm just saying, you know, how you work out the other stuff can come from other parts of Scripture. You know, I was always taught, and I try to encourage people, good Bible study involves observation, right? Interpretation, which is what we're trying to do now. See what the Scripture says, and then interpret it. And application, how you apply it. Then how do I live differently now? And uh, some people put a fourth one right here, I guess, <laughs> uh, which is correlation, which is a good one, too. So if I'm reading, okay, I'm not to, you know, if someone slaps me, I turn the other cheek, literally. Well, what does the rest of Scripture say? Don't just take that by itself. So, uh, and it's not for me today to tell you how to respond in every possible situation. But I will say, in this context, Jesus is teaching individuals, if someone offends you or assaults your personal dignity, do not retaliate. That's what this means. Now, if someone comes in our church and we have an active shooter and one of the members of our body has a piece of hardware with them, whatever. I will probably try to get behind that person. <laughs> and you might too. But see, that's not what this is talking about either. This is about individual. Jesus is saying if an individual slaps you, if he assaults your dignity, you do not retaliate. You just let it go. Okay. And then I tried to identify some hazards. It's like, okay, well, what would mess us up? In that, well, pride could be a problem, like a huge one, right? If I say something insulting to you or do something very insulting, especially, you know, I'm kind of old school when it comes to, you know, men and women and stuff. Men tend to act kind of more physical violent, right? Not every man and not every woman fit the, you know, kind of cliche, but generally a man gets slapped. He probably ain't going to like that. And if I could apply this, it would be like, I don't care if you like it or not. Jesus said, turn the other cheek. You do not, as a believer, as a member of the kingdom, you do not have the option to protect your dignity. That's just what this says. Other hazards to being able to live by that? Exaggeration or rationalization, right? Well, you can't just let people, you know, you can't, you, you, you can't let someone treat you like that. 
in the jail, that happens all the time. You, you can't, come on, bro. You got to stand up, man. It's dog eat dog. And I'm like, yeah, it's dog eat dog. But if you're in the kingdom, you belong to the king. And he's pretty good at taking care of his children. I'm speaking from my personal experience. He's pretty good at it. So, or exaggeration. Well, you know, the guy slapped me, but he was, you know, he was just about to, so I had to lay him out. You know, it's like, really? That would be exaggeration. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you get slapped, you get slapped. Worse things can happen. Okay, the next one. Um, so the basic human right in this next one is security, is what John MacArthur identifies. So we will read it. Uh, verse 40, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Okay, tunic, inner garment, cloak, outer garment. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, there was prohibitions against taking or taking and keeping a person's cloak, outer garment, because that's usually what they slept in. And so, like, if you loan somebody money and you were going to take collateral, you know, you if you took his cloak, you're supposed to give it back to him before nightfall, you know, because that's, yeah, that's what a person slept in. So, okay, so what do we got going here? Well, first of all, the person's not being robbed. Um, it's not um, a stick-up, so to speak. It's a lawsuit. That's the context. That's the, the meaning in this. If someone would sue you, and, you know, if you know the word, you realize clothing had immense value, right? I mean, people had to go shear sheep with hand clippers and then spin it and try to make, you know, thread or whatever out of it and then weave it on a loom. And, you know, it's like <laughs> most of our clothing's made in China and it's really cheap. You can go to Costco, buy a pair of jeans for 12 or 15 bucks. But clothing then was hugely valuable. So when you read like in the, like in Samson, and it's like, you know, he gave him so many sets of clothing. That was a lot of money. And so that's what's going on here. So if someone is going to sue you and take the part that they can take, the inner garment, let them take your other one as well. Now remember, this is individual non-retaliation. That's what's going on here. Um, he's not saying give everything away. He did tell some people to give everything away, but you have to take those in the context. So Jesus is not teaching here that if I'm like, hey, Brad, really like your car and uh, kind of like your bank account and, you know, what else you got? Can I have it? That's not what he is teaching here, right? But he is teaching, here's the hard part, if somebody brings suit against you, okay, now you got to work through this. And if they have kind of a legitimate claim, non-retaliation. Now, your lawyer wouldn't like it. Your financial advisor wouldn't like it. I don't know. I'm just saying, if someone has a legitimate claim and they bring suit against you, I would try to settle that out of court and get it done. But it's not about, well, I'm getting my lawyer and I, you know, I'm going to minimize the damage because I want to be a good steward. No, that's not what he's saying here. Okay, the next one. Oh, uh, so for the hazards on that, pride, which shows up in all of these, blame shifting. Am I in the right one? 
Yes, security. Yes, and, and this security also represents wealth, so we could put another hazard. Anyone come to mind? That relates to money and wealth? Who is that? Yes, greed, right? And we can justify greed a million ways. <laughs> and we live in a part of the soup that we're swimming in is a very materialistic, wealth-oriented, greedy kind of culture. So that's a hazard. And a lot of us w could think, well, I'm just being a good steward, getting the best lawyer and shutting him down because, you know, he wanted to sue me for, you know, when I was removing those trees in my yard and one fell on his house, but it's not my fault because the wind was blowing that way. So it's an act of God. Right? I don't, if any of you have been through that, I'm sorry. I was just making that up as I go. <laughs> and you probably should have called me because I've done <clears throat> up to this point rather well in dropping trees around houses. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad somebody laughed. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I kind of am, but I'm kind of not. So it's good to keep you guessing. All right. The next one, verse 41. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. You're probably thinking like the whole Roman occupation thing, right? Where the Roman soldier had the, had the right to force people in the area to carry their pack or carry their load, which I think is true in biblical times. But there was also like a whole other layer to this. And there were uh, basically official couriers. And they, these couriers traveling around, because, you know, obviously no phone, no internet, you know, messages had to go be physically delivered. And these couriers had the right to hijack kind of anything, a ship, horses, anything to, to fulfill their duty. And um, as I was studying this, that seems like that's actually where that comes from, though the idea of the Roman soldier forcing somebody to carry his pack is very applicable. But it's a concept they were familiar with. Uh, it's not unlike um, if you watch like a crime show or a cop show and there's an emergency and a cop runs out in, the, out in the traffic and stops the car and pulls out his badge, police, you know, and he takes his car and chases the bad guy. It's that kind of a thing where they were familiar with you can be forced, you can lose your liberty and freedoms for the governmental purpose kind of a thing. Okay, so liberty would be the one. That's the third uh, human right that, according to the Sermon on the Mount, I don't really have the biblical uh, mandate to retaliate for. Now, I'm not anti-patriotic, and I'm not saying you lay down and let the government do whatever they want. not saying that. But I am saying that, according to Jesus here, um, there are issues where our, our personal liberty is not the most important thing. Because we're kingdom subjects in the kingdom. That overarches everything else. So... Uh, what is it talking about? It's forced compliance to, you know, you, the government or authorities have the ability to force you to comply with something that infringes on your liberty. 
I'm not intentionally referring to the last month or year and a half of American or global history. I'm just saying this is what this says here. Okay, what it's not, it's not assisting unlawful activity. So, you know, if someone comes to me and says, all right, I want you to drive me to the bank and keep the motor running and I'm going to go in and rob the bank. And, you know, it's like, no, that's not, Jesus is not talking about that. He's not talking about aiding and abetting unlawful activity. He's talking about being willing to submit to lose your liberty for a, at least a portion of time. And he's saying not just that, but go beyond. Because it's about the kingdom. And I heard somebody preaching on this once saying, you know, I could see the Apostle Paul, after he got saved, carrying a Roman's pack and going the second mile and just burning that guy's ears, you know, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because that's probably what he did when he was in prison. But that's what this is about. The whole, all of this is about we have a higher purpose. And it's not me. And it's not you. And the frog in the kettle thing is relentlessly brainwashing you to think it is you. You're the ultimate purpose. That's what the world wants to convince you of. And Jesus has to change the way we think and realize, no, nah, man, there's things more important. There's more important things than who gets that job, whether I get the promotion or somebody else. I'm in the kingdom. This is about kingdom stuff. There are people dying and going to hell. That's what's important. Okay, pride, the hazards for that, pride, patriotic zeal. You could see in that time there were the zealots, and they weren't putting up with none of this kind of stuff, right? Mm -mm. No, they wouldn't tolerate it. And I put bad attitude because uh, that's pretty much, I think, me, you know, that when my rights get infringed upon, I can get kind of cranky. I'm sure you, none of you have that problem, but sometimes it works that way. Okay, then the last one. Um, okay, that was verse 41. Verse 42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Okay, so this last one is property. You could also, you know, just put wealth or whatever. But uh, MacArthur's word was property. That that is the fourth thing that we do not resist, the one who is evil. And I do not retaliate through that. So if someone begs or asks me, Jesus is saying I should give. Right? Isn't that what he says? Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Refuse essentially means turn away. Have you ever seen someone come in your way and you kind of have an idea what they're going to want and you turn away? Nobody? Man, if you're out on the street, it happens. <laughs> right? Yeah. Actually, it probably happens at a lot of intersections. Right, because that, that would be applicable right here. Now, I'm not saying, you know, give to the guy on the street who's holding the cardboard sign. You've got to kind of have to work that out. There are legal kind of ramifications if you violate the, you know, municipal code by handing money out of a motor vehicle or whatever. That's not the point. But the point is, do not turn away 
from the one who begs, the one who asks you. Don't turn away. You can intelligently say, you know, here's an energy bar. You know, I'm not going to give you cash, or I'm never comfortable giving cash. Or you could just give them some cash or say, hey, I, you know, I don't have any money. It has to be true when you say that, which could be a good reason not to carry cash. I don't know. I mean, if you run into that all the time and you don't feel good about giving money to people on the street, um, because, okay, this is about generosity. It's not about enabling sin. If you have a 40-year-old child who's still living in the basement, th that's not what this is about. You know what I mean? Sometimes we've got to help our kids grow up and get out there, and sometimes it's the tough love, as the man used to say generations ago. You know, sometimes we have to make the hard decision and say, I'm not going to give you that because this is not helping you. Intelligent, meaningful conversation is always better. So if you're going to not give to somebody, there should be a reason. It should be a godly reason, and I would encourage you to communicate that. But this is about generosity. It's about being willing to give and not come up with a bunch of reasons why you shouldn't. It's also, it's like a give at that time. It's not a once-for-all thing, or it's not a give forever, like, you know, I just made it to the NBA and I got millions of dollars, so my you know, cousin from Compton is like, hey, bro, Greg, you know, I need some money. And you know, so he's hitting me up once a month now for you know, 10,000 bucks or something. That's not what this is about. This is about me being willing to give and not turn away. The easiest thing is to turn away a lot of times. Act like you don't see someone. You ever done that at the light when the guy's right there because he's right next to you with this line and you're like, I'm waiting for the light to turn green. And I hope it turns green fast because that guy's annoying. <laughs> right? Don't turn away. Don't turn away. You can roll down your window if you want. Say, hi, how you doing? He's not going to bite you. Well, hopefully. But you know what I'm saying. This is not, this isn't hard. It's be generous. God wants his people to be generous. Not just right here. Generous all the time. Right? Do you believe that? I believe that. Okay, hazard, pride, again, justification or selfishness. These are things that would make it real easy to not obey this. It's like, well, you know, they just need to get a job. I made my way in the world. That's how they got to do it, too. You know, get off of public assistance or, you know, whatever. Go back to your country and get a job or, you know, any one of a million ways you can justify it. And selfishness. Well, if I give him, you know, if I do it this time, I could be opening, you know, breaking the dam. Sometimes that would be a legitimate concern. And in that case, then you explain it to the person. Okay, so the bottom line, revise your assumptions. You're like, what? Well, at the very end, toward the very end of chapter 7, Matthew 7, 21, 23, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, Jesus, King Jesus, you're here, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? I mean, that's quite the resume. 
isn't it? Prophesy, speaking through the influence or the unction or whatever you want to call it of the Holy Spirit, casting out demons, doing mighty works. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So, to get this ultimate, you know, happiness, it's costly. It's not just, doesn't just fall like rain out of the clouds. Number one, you've got to revise your assumptions. He wants to change the way you think. So re-examine your assumptions. And then refocus your priorities. Kingdom first. And this is in the next chapter. It's about the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom. Don't worry about this. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about these little things. Focus on the kingdom. And those things will be added. The complications of all this will work out. Focus on the kingdom. It will cost you. Change the way you live. Live as salt and light and glorify the king. So if you're wondering, well, okay, let's talk about application. Seriously, it's the Sermon on the Mount. (laughs) The whole thing is application. But if you want just one, you can pick one of the four things that we just talked about right there. Right? Whichever one would be the most challenging for you, that's the one I would pick if I were you. Whatever's going to be like, that's not the one I want. I don't want to give money to poor people. Well, maybe that's the one you need to work on. Just to be clear, sometimes you give money to poor people and it does enable sin and it will be used to buy a bottle or whatever. I'm not naive. But more important than that is you and your heart. And you've got to be generous. So how you work it out, is that's between you two. Um, and I'll fit, close with this. Um, I don't know if you guys ever get to hear Chuck Swindoll preach. I get to hear him sometimes in the morning when I'm going to the jail because it's on some station at sick. Oh, yeah, that, your day would be half over by then, <laughs> right, Chris? Yeah, but his, you know, if you know of him, which you probably do, he's, he's great. And um, anyway, he quoted, I think it was a poet or somebody in his message this past week, and it had to do about a burning, the burning bush. And the person he quoted was, all the world or, or the entire world is aflame with burning bushes, but only those who can truly see remove their shoes. This reference to Moses, the burning bush. And God said, take, take off your shoes for where you are is holy. And this person is saying, you know, it's kind of symbolic, not literal, but... The whole world is aflame with burning bushes, but only those who can truly see will remove their shoes. The rest just wander around aimlessly picking berries. And I thought, that is so applicable to the kingdom. You know, most Christians, I think, wander around aimlessly, you kind of knowing and thinking, yeah, the kingdom is here, and I'm, I'm in the kingdom, and what's for lunch? Or, you know... When's that game come on? i got to get home because I, for, I don't know if I set the TiVo or not. And it's like, it's the kingdom. The kingdom means the king. And we are his subjects. And we live, we must choose to live in the rule of his kingship. It won't just happen. 
So I would encourage you, um, change the way you think. If the kingdom sounds like some kind of far off concept or, you know, la-di-da thing, like heaven's like, oh, it's awesome and it's way out there, but I can't touch it or feel it. Change the way you think. Jesus said over and over, the kingdom is among you. The kingdom is in your midst. And what I do and why I do it should be directly of results of the kingdom authority. What I watch on TV, or if I even have a TV, should be under the authority of the king. What I do with my phone or my tablet or my computer should be under the authority of the king. How I spend my money, I should realize I'm a steward. It's under the authority of the king. How I use my free time, if God gives you health and wealth and the ability to just enjoy life, that must be under the authority of the king. Otherwise, it's wood, hay, stubble, and it'll all burn up. And don't do that. Thank you, Lord. You are good. Ah, and it's good to hear from you. I thank you for your word in the Sermon on the Mount. It never ends, Lord. It is so good. And I pray that it would just, if it was half as good to everybody else here, man, we'd be so blessed. So I thank you, Lord. I ask your blessing on our body here and those who aren't here. May you do great and amazing things in their life. May you be visible and demonstrated in their lives, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Oh, and I probably should pray for lunch, right? I always forget that. All right. And Lord, thank you for lunch. Thank you for the awesome people that prepare it, and you provide it. May you bless that food and that time to our our bodies in Christ's name. Amen.